Today we are going to continue in our study of Ephesians that we have titled, The Gospel Revealed. And I have the great privilege and fearful responsibility over the next two weeks of handling the portion of Ephesians where God defines our state or condition before him. He declares that it is through his work alone that men are saved, that is regenerated to new life in Christ. And then he reveals to those who are saved that, it, that in his regenerated work in Christ, that he reveals what they have been called to. So if you will join me in your copy of the scriptures in Ephesians chapter 2, I will begin reading in verse 1 down through verse 10. I will pray for us and we'll begin our study of God's word. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, it is a fearful thing to divide rightly your word. And even more weighty to stand before your church and declare it. Use this broken vessel to your glory. Father, stay my lips from error. Hold me to the text. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What does it mean to be dead? Many of you might be like, whoa, he's going to define every word. We're going to be here until dinner time, right? But there are varying degrees or definitions for dead. We could turn to the medical professionals and find out how they define dead clinically. When someone is clinically dead, two things have to be observed. Breathing has stopped and blood is no longer being circulated through the body when the heart stops beating in regular rhythm. They are clinically dead. This condition is also known as cardiac arrest. Two years ago, I was working on the east side of the state when I received a phone call that my Uncle Clark had had a massive heart attack. After informing the boss of what had happened, and with his permission, I began the two and a half hour drive home to be with the family in slim hopes that I would make it in time to see Clark before he passed. Partway home, stuck in traffic, and in the pouring rain, I received another call, this time with even heavier news. I was informed that between the initial event and the paramedic's arrival at the hospital, Clark had coded or gone into cardiac arrest five times. My heart broke within me as I prepared myself to grieve with the family upon arrival. I told you. 
He had clinically died five times, and in my limited medical training, I knew that the probability of someone recovering from such a trauma and the hopes of me making it home in time were slim to none. Fast forward to two weeks ago. Last Thursday, when I arrived home from a trip to Arkansas, where my Uncle Clark and I, along with my dad and my Uncle Jan, returned from putting a roof on my great aunt's house. Uncle Clark had died clinically five times, but had not been declared legally dead. The definition for someone who is legally dead means that they are beyond resuscitation or that resuscitation is no longer possible. The Greek word in our text for dead is nekros or corpse, one who is beyond resuscitation, legally dead. To help solidify this definition in our minds, I would ask you to hold your place in Ephesians and join me in Ezekiel chapter 37, where we'll be reading verses 1 through 3. As with many things in the Old Testament, this story is not just about what was happening with Israel in real time, but it is also a type and shadow or foretelling or picture of what God does through his regenerating work of salvation. Ezekiel 37, 1 through 3. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I said, O Lord God, you know. And behold, they were very dry, beyond resuscitation. Legally dead. Back to our text in Ephesians. So not only do we see that mankind is dead, but at the end of verse 1, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So this is not describing a declaration of legally dead in a physical sense, but a declaration of legally dead in a spiritual one. Man is spiritually dead and beyond resuscitation. Now we need to do a little word study. In our trespasses and sins, we see the word trespasses in verse 1 and again in verse 5. This is the word in the Greek, <laughs> pereptoma. Don, thank you. I got the thumbs up. Pereptoma, which comes from the word paraipto. I got another thumbs up. I'm doing good. Meaning to fall or error, to apostatize, fall away in transgression. Now, transgression is the Hebrew word pesha, which literally means a revolt or rebellion. Sins in verse 1 is the word hamartia, hamartia meaning offense. So let's put this all together. In our text so far, in verse 1, God declares the state or condition of man before him to be spiritually, legally dead, beyond resuscitation, and in our willful revolt and rebellion and offense against him. This is not good news. And it is in this state or condition before the Lord, as we continue reading in the next two verses, that we find ourselves following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath. This is a hopeless state before a holy, righteous, and good God. 
Not only are we spiritually dead beyond resuscitation and without capacity for change, in our open and willful rebellious state, we do not want or desire to change. We are willfully dead. You'll hear me use that term throughout this study today. Now many of us may be getting a little uncomfortable at this point, and that's to be expected. Our flesh within us is an idolater of self and does not want to hear that we are responsible. Besides, it doesn't seem to add up. We see God's description for all of mankind in this text, and you think about your experiences with family and friends, you look at the world around you, and even if you watch the news, you still may be saying to yourself, I don't see it. It seems that at least a large percentage of the world isn't that bad, and you may even be tempted to use the word good. I mean, sure, there are all the criminals and horrible things happening in the news, but willfully dead? That can't be all of us. Sure, it's not me. The majority of us are obeying the laws of the land, helping our neighbors, feeding the poor, taking care of our children and families, caring for the sick, protecting the weak. This doesn't add up. Based on anecdotal evidence, what I've seen and experienced, it seems that maybe the world is right. Maybe man is mostly good, and it's the environment around him that makes him evil. Do not be deceived. The evil in the world does not come from outside of man, but from within him. Genesis 6-5 says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. And before you think to yourself, well, that was before the flood. Immediately following in Genesis 8, when Noah is sacrificing to the Lord, we read in verse 21, and when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Evil from his youth, that word youth is from the Hebrew word ne'er, ne'er. That means from the age of infancy. So not only do the scriptures tell us that we are willfully dead, but Genesis 8 tells us we're born that way. I want to share an illustration. I want to be clear for copyright laws. This is not my illustration. And the person that I heard it from, it was him giving testimony of somebody else. So I want to be clear. This is not my illustration, but it's something that we've all experienced, and I think this helps solidify what we've just ascertained from the text. How many of you held a baby? Newborn baby? Okay, most if not all of us. How many of you have been holding that baby when they seem to have been fixed on an item on your person? Ladies, it could be a necklace or earrings. Gentlemen, it could be your nose or your lips or your beard or your watch. Okay, how many of us have, have, have experienced this? Okay. All right. <laughs> this child, this wonderful little bundle of joy, reaches for that item and tries to grab it. Now, for the safety of the child and your own comfort, especially you ladies with earrings, you grab their hand, pull it away, and what do you say? No. After a few seconds, you release their hand, and immediately, still fixated on that item, they reach for it again. This time, no longer being caught off guard, you react even faster and grab their hand, holding it firmly to their side, and what do you say? I said, no. This continues a third or maybe in a fourth time until unable to overpower you, the child, in a fit of rage, throws a tantrum. 
Now they can't even talk yet, but their body language is clear. Swinging and kicking, crying and screaming, they squirm and convulse with every fiber of their being in fierce response and opposition against you withholding what they most desire. In this illustration that I heard, a retired police officer who had a long career observing firsthand the depths of our depravity was describing this experience and he observed this, that if that child in that moment of rage could suddenly become an adult in their newfound strength, they would overpower you, slaughter you where you stood, and then remove the item they became so fixed on without another thought to you. This is what it looks like to be born willfully dead. We're not the only ones to struggle with this. We touched on this in this morning's Sunday school lesson. To struggle with our, what we observe and experience our anecdotal evidences, turn with me to 1 Samuel 16. If you remember, this is the story where God sends Samuel to the prophet, Samuel the prophet, to the house of Jesse to anoint one of his sons to replace Paul, Saul. But God doesn't tell Samuel beforehand which one he is to choose. The Lord tells Samuel in 16.3, anoint for me him whom I declare to you. And it is here where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. When they came, he, being Samuel, looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now we need to take a slight detour and talk about what this verse is not saying. This verse does not give room or allow for those who would profess Christ and at the same time bear no fruit of regeneration to live in the desires of their flesh and when confronted by another about their sin to say, you can't judge me based on what I do on the outside because only God sees my heart. That is a lie and goes against the teachings of Scripture. And I will tell you this, if God has your heart in the sense that the Hebrews meant it as the core of your being, he will have the rest of you as well, and there will be evidence. More on that next week. When we read this verse in the context of the passage, God is warning Samuel against what he perceives to be good based on anecdotal evidences, what he sees and experiences. Our takeaway is much the same. Don't be fooled or deceived by what you perceive to be good. Man is willfully dead. And not only that, but in the account of the rich young ruler recorded for us in Luke 18 and Mark 10, Jesus declares no one is good except God alone. So how do we reconcile what we see and experience with what it says in the text? I would submit to you that if no one is good except God alone, as we read in Luke 18 and 10, and 10 Mark 10, and in James 1, we read in verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of light. In other words, all that is good finds its origins or beginnings in God. Then it stands to reason that if man is willfully dead, and yet we do not always see the depth of that depravity manifested to its full extent, but rather what appears to be good, the only conclusion that aligns with the text is that man is willfully dead, but God in his goodness restrains evil men. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to explore the many ways that God accomplishes his restraint of evil 
or to read all the supporting text for this statement. However, I do not want you to simply take my word for it. So I want us to read one of the accounts in Scripture that clearly shows what happens when, in his judgment of the willfully dead, God removes his restraint and leaves us to our depravity. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32. Romans 1, 18 through 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Pause for a second. What is he talking about? He's talking about God's general revelation or what can be known about him by observing all that he has created. Unpause. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up, removed his restraint. In the lust of their hearts and impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonoring, dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the reality of the total depravity of man apart from the restraining work of God. And it is in his restraint that evil of mankind does not manifest outwardly to its full capability and willfully dead men can seem to be doing good. Do not be fooled. Scripture says no one is good except God alone. So how did we get here? We chose to be willfully dead. We chose. And now most if not all of us, including me, are uncomfortable because of our flesh. What do you mean we chose to be willfully dead? We just learned that we are born that way. That's not a choice. This is where the doctrine of original sin comes in. According to Matt Lawson's reading and understanding of a whole lot of stuff that we don't have time to go through, abridged Cliff Note version, in other words, make sure you get in the Word and study this for yourself. <laughs> the doctrine of original sin goes like this. 
In the account of creation in Genesis 1 and the retelling in detail in Genesis 2, God makes Adam from the dust of the ground, declares he is good, and places him in the Garden of Eden. Then in chapter 2, verse 16, we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then God makes Eve from Adam's rib, and when Adam wakes up, he is overwhelmed with praise for all the reasons that you can imagine, and the institution of the family is born. Ladies, happy early Mother's Day. Then at some point, we're not told how long paradise lasted, Satan, in the form of a serpent, deceives Eve in believing that the fruit that God commanded them not to eat had no real curse associated with it, and then decided for herself that it looks like it would be good for eating and would make her wise, like the serpent said. Pause for a second. Where's Adam when all this is going on? If you're there in Genesis, look at Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Where was Adam? He was right there. Adam being created first in his free will, not being deceived, objectively chose to rebel against his God and in so doing condemned all of mankind to be willfully dead and brought a curse upon creation. Now there are a couple things that we need to flesh out before we can move on. Why am I singling out Adam? Didn't Eve sin as well? Yes, Adam and Eve both sinned against their God, but it was not through Eve's sin that the curse came to all of creation. What was the curse that Eve's sin brought? We read Genesis 3, verse 16. There's two things that it brought. Pain in childbearing and a willful desire to rebel against the headship of a wife to her husband. Now look at Adam's sin, the curse that he brought. In verse 17 and through 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Now stop here for a minute, men. Eyes up here. Okay, I want to be very clear. This verse does not give you the liberty to pass the buck as Adam did and claim that you, didn't, you don't have to listen to your wives because that's how we got in this mess in the first place. Don't do that. That's not what this says. That's not what I'm saying, and I don't want to get that phone call. What this is saying is that Adam being made first, not being deceived, but knowing full well the commandment of the Lord chose in his objective free will to listen to his wife instead of God. And because of this, we are all born spiritually, willfully dead. The curse continues in verse 17. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plant of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Adam, being made first in his free will, not being deceived, but knowing full well the commandment of the Lord, objectively chose to rebel against his God, and in his choice, chose for all of us. And our flesh really hates that statement. What do you mean he chose for us all? I don't want anybody else choosing for me. How does he know what I would have done? Are you saying man doesn't have a choice? I thought you said we had objective free will. That's not what I said. 
I said Adam and Eve had objective free will. Your objective choice was made in Adam. Within the doctrine of original sin is a concept called federal headship. Federal headship. That helps explain the imputation or charge of Adam's choice to us. The idea of federal headship means that Adam, being created first and having objective free will, was our perfect representative and a perfect reflection of what all of us would do, having been given the same choice. In this perfect representation of us, in that objective free will, not being deceived, but knowing full well the commandment of the Lord, he chose to rebel, and so did we. Our free will is that we are allowed to continue in that choice that we made in Adam, to seek out that which we desire most, which is rebellion against our creator God, and as we read in Genesis 6, only evil continually. Let that sink in and join me back in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and all God's people said. Amen. Salvation, or the act of raising those who were willfully dead to resurrected life, is the work of God alone. How do we know this? Because in verse 5 it says, you were still dead in your trespasses when he chose. This doctrine or belief that God alone raises the willful dead to new life in Christ is summed up in the theology or doctrine known as monergism. Monergism. Monergism comes from the Greek mono, meaning single or one, alone, and ergon, which means to work. To work. Taken together, it means the work of one. God, because of who he is, and in his sovereign will alone, knowing that all of mankind would rebel in Adam and continue to do so, chose before the foundation of the world to call a people to himself out of those who were willfully dead, extending grace through the cross of Christ and in the power of his resurrection from the dead, raises dead men to life. And that is the good news of the gospel. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And yet some of us may still be wondering why have we spent so much time talking about the depravity of man. It's for the same reason that when you go to buy a diamond at the jewelers, you find it displayed on a black cloth. It's for this same reason that you don't pay any attention to the stars in the daytime, though they are there, but against the darkness of night, their true beauty and wonder is revealed. If you do not understand the depravity of man and the truth that we are willfully dead, you will not think much of the grace that God has been, has been given. You will find yourself deceived into thinking we simply made a mistake. Surely if we had the right understanding or the right book or some good advice, we could change. Don't be deceived. It is only against the black backdrop of man's total depravity and the truth that we are willfully dead that we begin to see the true glory of God's grace toward us. Only then do we recognize that he is our only hope of salvation. We don't need good advice. We need the good news of the gospel revealed that God, 
through Christ, raises willfully dead men to resurrected life. 